Case number 22-1028, National Association of Immigration Judges, International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, Judicial Council 2, Petitioner, versus Federal Labor Relations Authority. Mr. Garcia for the petitioner, Ms. Osborne for the respondent. Good morning, Council. Mr. Garcia, please proceed when you're ready. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court and Council. My name is Abiel Garcia, and I represent the National Association of Immigration Judges. Acting in haste to deprive immigration judges of their right to belong to a union, the majority has cobbled together a decision that ignores authority precedent covering both the review of unit certifications and the scope of the management official exclusion. This is a direct quote from now Chairman DeBester regarding the authority's 2020 decision. This statement underpins the repeated due process violations committed by the authority. The union is before this court today to ask that the court vacate the authority's 2020 decision decertifying the union and a subsequent 2022 decision denying a motion to reconsider and then remand this case back to the authority so it can issue an opinion consistent with due process. In overruling the regional director's detailed and methodical 25-page analysis, the authority's 2020 and 2022 decisions are, as now Chairman DeBester summarily stated, quote, the antithesis of reasoned decision-making, unquote. Both opinions fail to grapple with any of the regional director's factual or legal findings, and at no point does the authority hold that the regional director erred in any way. So there's some threshold questions about whether this case is probably before us based on the way it came up. Yes, Your Honor. And it's undisputed, I think, that at the time that you brought your petition for review, there was a motion for reconsideration pending before the agency. Yes, Your Honor. And why doesn't that just run squarely into the general doctrine that when there's a motion for reconsideration pending, the bringing of a petition for review is incurably premature? So that motion to reconsider specifically asks for a motion to reconsider EOIR or EOIR 2022, the authority's 2022 decision. Would you mind just raising the mics just a little bit? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Speak a little louder, please. That motion to reconsider, which was filed after the authority's 2022 decision, was asking for a reconsideration of the 2022 decision, right? And so at that point, we hold that EOIR 20 or EOIR 2020 was final because we were not asking for reconsideration at that point in 2020. And it actually, in the authority's 2022 decision, it even dismissed the union's motion for reconsideration. And so at that point, what we said in our briefing as well was if it wasn't premature, it would only be with respect to the authority's 2022 decision. But what would be the sense of splicing it that way? Because the reason we have the incurable prematurity doctrine is that something might happen in the still ongoing proceedings before the agency that would affect our review, including in rendering it entirely unnecessary. That's going to be the case even if, I'm not sure it makes sense to splice it in the way that you are, but even if you thought that it could, still have the same problem because whatever was pending before the agency could still have the effect of rendering our review unnecessary. Our understanding is that they wouldn't, because we were asking for reconsideration of 2022 decision, which was, again, just analyzing a reconsideration already, that whatever effect or decision taken by the authority would not have affected the 2020 decision, which is the primary decision we're driving. How could that be? Because the 2020 decision, then we would just be addressing a decision that would have been superseded in the agency itself by whatever it did with the 2022 decision. 
Because the 2020 decision, in our, in our view, is an, an actual appropriate unit determination, and then the 2022 decision is whether or not they should reconsider that. Our further reconsideration after that would then be whether or not they would properly looked at to reconsider the original opinion. But that had no effect on whether or not they were going to... Well, suppose they granted reconsideration and they actually gave you everything you asked for. Then would that then we, we would still be looking at a decision that had already been reconsidered and as to which you'd already gotten the grant of relief? Well, we would ask for, we'd ask for a further briefing in terms of... Uh, we, we had a pending motion to stay and remand for, for further fact-finding uh, that never got ruled on. And so um, I don't know if, if the court would have given us everything exactly would have... Uh, helped effectuate or helped um, provide the relief we were looking for. Yeah, this problem arose in the federal courts, not in the context of administrative law, but in the context of federal civil procedure and federal rules of appellate procedure. And it created a, a what the uh, advisory committee called a dire trap for the unwary. And so the federal rules of civil procedure of appellate procedure now provide to solve the problem that Judge Srinivasan has uh, mentioned, now provide that, that if the motion for reconsideration is denied, that is the point in which the premature notice of appeal ripens. And, if, and so nothing goes forward until the motion for reconsideration is heard. Now, I, I, I don't know where this doctrine came from for sure. Uh, in our court, this incurably premature, but it looks like it came from a procuring opinion in about 1985 before any of the federal rules abolished that. Um, so I, and the other thing I don't know is whether it's ever been applied in the FLRA context. Are you aware of it ever be, that, that incurably premature? I am not aware of any. Because you can't find that in, in the judicial review provision uh, you can't find anything of that sort in the judicial review provision for uh, FRA decisions. So if you're if you're a counsel and you're looking at it and you pull out whatever it is, 70-something-3, is it? That's a 103, please. Yeah, yeah. You pull that out and you read it, and you, you wouldn't have a clue that, there, that, you, you, that if you file a motion for reconsideration, you can't file a petition for rehearing or for uh, judicial review. Correct, yeah. But aren't there timelines, a uh, time limit to file a, your petition for review? Yes, there is a 60-day after. after so, so how is a, a petition for review filed in 2022 timely as to the order in 2020 that you say we're really seeking review of? So we, uh, the petition, well, the petition for the reconsideration motion on the authority's actions in 2022 are a further extension of just the repeated due process violations that happened over the, the course of the three years of the underlying litigation. So that's why the motion to reconsider in 2022 is specifically asking to reconsider at the authorities 2022 opinion. Because if, if we had tried to link it back to 2020, it would be improper or untimely. But then that just proves that it's incurably premature under our precedent because now you're saying that the argument that you're making for us today, which is that there are due process violations, or the arguments that you were making in your motion for reconsideration. Well, we were raising further uh, due process violations to the court in our 2022 reconsideration, but those original, you know, we, there are underlying issues and due process violations that happened in 2020 that we think are properly before this court and are not subject to the incurable premature argument. 
But you didn't flag those. I mean, there's another issue here, which is whether you raised the arguments before the agency. And I don't know how you could have raised arguments about due process vis-a-vis the initial decision, because I think the due process claims primarily relate to things that happened after the initial decision or in the consideration of the initial decision. So our November 17, 2020 motion to reconsider after the authority's 2020 decision flags the specific arguments about the lack of a, of a reasoned opinion, uh, discusses the issue with the announcement of this new rule that winning parties have to uh, file a pro, pro, pro cross appeal uh, on a winning decision. Uh, those arguments are flagged in our November 17, 2020 uh, briefing to the authority. Right, but, but even if we thought that those were due process arguments, and I think there's a question about that, but even if we thought that, that would be after the decision that you're saying that is before us. Uh, that is after the first decision that is before you, after the authority 2020 decision, because up until that point, the authority had not announced this new prophylactic rule, and up until that point when the authority issued 2020, um, the regional director's decision was the controlling decision, which is a well-thought-out methodical 25-page analysis. So that's your extraordinary circumstance? Well, the extraordinary circumstance, Your Honor, would be the fact that the regional director um, took the time to analyze the actual day-to-day duties of an immigration judge, went through the criterion as to what a management official is, how it interplays with the immigration judge's duties, and at, at the end of the day, it made the analysis that immigration judges at this day and time, in 2020, are not management officials. The extraordinary that's, not, that's not what I was referring to. I was referring to the jurisdictional statute that that prohibits a court from reviewing an objection that was not made before the agency, except in the uh, except when there's extraordinary circumstances. Uh, I understand. Your, um, so our argument is that we have made the same arguments to the authority uh, multiple times since the November 17, 2020 uh, motion, and have repeatedly been raising this argument over the past two years. So to be clear, right, the regional director's decision um, really analyzes a lot of different issues and findings. Um, for instance, whether the Board of Immigration Appeals continues to review and remand cases, uh, how immigration judges implement immigration policy, and there's scores of others, right? But none of these are discussed in the authority's 2020 or 2022 decisions, right? The, the, the linchpin of the authority's 2020 decision comes down to one issue, and the authority explains, quote, Arguing immigration judges' decisions do not influence agency policy while board members' decisions do is akin to arguing that district court decisions do not shape the law while appellate court decisions do. Such a distinction, based on what appears to be solely reviewability decisions, is nonsensical, end quote. This is the sole explanation. I think we have um, the merits of your due process argument for your briefing, and I just want to make sure you have, you reserve some time for I rebuttal. Some time for rebuttal, yes. And we'll... We'll, we will give you that time if our colleagues don't have any additional questions for you this time. Thank you, Your Thank you, Mr. Garcia. Ms. Osborne, we'll hear from you now. Your Honors, may it please the court. Um, the immigration judge's petition for review should be denied in its entirety. Um, with respect to the constitutional claim, the FLRA's assessment of the unit certification petition satisfied any due process rights that the union had um, with respect to the claims. What exactly is your understanding of the the due process claim that's been raised? Um, There are two due process claims, and they were not raised by uh, the union until the second motion for reconsideration, which was still pending when the 
petition for review was filed. And just to clarify, we had also raised the premature, uh, incurably premature argument um, when the union filed emergency motion for stay. So what, they what, what are the two due process claims? Um, substantive not... due process and procedural due process. And we argue. But, yeah, but that doesn't. What, what is the procedural due process? The procedural due process claim they have argued that they have a liberty interest that was violated by the authority. Um, first, because they had not had the opportunity to assert that there had been a, that there had not been a substantial change to the unit. And that's simply not true. They could have raised that issue. They lost the issue of substantial change before the regional director. The regional director found that there had been a substantial change in the unit, but the regional director found it didn't alter the character of the unit. The authority, when um, applications for review were made to the regional director's decision, the agency filed an application for review, but the union did not. And so the authority properly held under the regulation that that the issue of substantial change had been and that's because it was waived and the um, union should have brought that claim under okay. section 22 2422 uh, dot31 um, they also claimed that the authority violated due process rights because there had been a rush to have a dissenting member finalize a draft dissent decision, and that's actually not accurate because the decision had actually been in the process of being drafted. Um, and the majority had simply stated that they were intending to issue the decision within 21 days and asked the um, dissenting member to finalize the decision within 21 days. They've also said that um, the case was not um, moot at the time that the authorities rendered the second decision denying motion for reconsideration, and they say that's because the parties had entered into a settlement agreement. But the problem is that the statute gives to the authority alone the ability to determine an appropriate unit, and it's not something that parties can settle. And there is authority case law going back to 1990 that says the fundamental principle of the statute that parties cannot negotiate over the unit status of employees. Yeah, that's, I mean, the idea is that the, the employer then provokes an unfair labor practice charge and refuses to bargain, and then you determine, and one of the defenses is an inappropriate unit, right? How can, how can this union ever provoke an unfair labor practice charge? Well, it could have actually provoked an unfair labor practice charge because it had a valid, live, um, unfair, la unfair labor practice complaint that was being prosecuted through the Office of General Counsel but as of December be, but There can't be a year. refusal to bargain if the union is not recognized. Well, but there, there is... An individual could have... Well, an individual, yes, an individual. I saw that in your brief, but that's not the union. But the union itself had live complaints 
as of December of last year, and those complaints could have moved forward. But the union chose. I don't see how. I frankly don't see how. Well, Your Honor, those those complaints were lodged, and if you look at the settlement agreement, um, the Office of General Counsel at that point, because the unit union had not yet been decertified. Um, Exactly. Well, that's another question I had. I, I just want to make sure the in the in the National Labor Relations Board context, which you use rightly as an analogy, the um, an individual or a union uh, can't or even an employer cannot bring an unfair labor practice charge. That's up to the general counsel, and, and uh, they can go to the general counsel and request and, and request them to do that. Uh, is that? The same situation in the FLRA? And in this case, the union had filed five separate charges. The uh, Office of General Counsel consolidated those charges and issued a complaint. Okay. So um, that's when I say that there was a live complaint as of December of I last see. year. There yeah. was. And the Office of General Counsel was prepared to process. Um, also in this case, there um, the union has already filed for recertification and there, of the union, and there's going to be a hearing on that for the regional director. That has anywhere. not been decided. It has not been decided. Um, it, the hearing is going to be held in January. The parties had asked that proceedings. Be has the composition of the FORA changed since uh, 2020? Um, yes, it has. Um, in any event, one of the issues that I did want to raise about the need to exhaust is Congress clearly did not intend for appropriate unit determinations to be directly reviewed in courts. We are concerned that um, a direct review of a constitutional claim will provide an incentive for parties um, to bring challenges to appropriate unit determinations um, as constitutional. Claims. And this is important institutionally because there are at least four different decisions among different FLRA components, and those components have non-reviewable decisions, and you can only get reviewed indirectly. So, for example, there were five challenges to FISIP decisions in district courts over the past five years. Those courts held parties in the case had to administrate exhaust through the ULP process, which is reviewable by the court. Um, if that was not the case, the parties could simply challenge the business decisions, authority decisions, um, and other non-reviewable decisions directly in the court by raising Yes, you sort of mentioned in passing in your briefing, I think it was in your reply brief, this the principle that if the party didn't raise the argument before the agency and give the agency to address it, then we lack jurisdiction over it. That is also true. But are you relying on that argument? Because you, I mean, it's, I think there may be a if it's jurisdictional, it doesn't matter whether you specifically invoke it, but your yeah. briefs didn't make a rope, didn't make much of an argument to that effect. Um. In my brief or in uh, before you today, I can make the argument for you today. I think that um, I guess I'm wondering, did you not emphasize it in your briefing because you have a concern about its applicability here or yeah, I, don't. I don't, Your Honor. I, I think 
claims need to be administratively exhausted. And in this case, it goes also to the issue of prematurity because the constitutional claims were not raised before the authority in the um, first motion for reconsideration. It's only in the second motion for reconsideration and the union filed the petition before this court before the authority could address this. I think it's an odd formulation. It, the way I understand it, and I'll ask counsel for the union, is the claim is that the decision of the uh, board or the authority was arbitrary and capricious, and therefore it denied us due process, which is just a kind of fancy way of saying it violated the APA. Um, that is a concern that, that and I think um, the Supreme Court said in FCC v. Fox that there is arbitrary and capricious under constitutional standards are different from. See, that's an objection that is. It can't. It's never made in the before the agency, no matter which agency it is, whether it's the board or any other uh, FCC or whatever. It, it, it's an objection that's always made for the first time in our court, obviously, because you can't make it without having the the decision already come down. It's arbitrary and capricious. So that doesn't fall within the prohibition of uh, the. Um, whatever, 7123 or C or something like that. Well, the problem with that is, Your Honor, that because there is no direct judicial review of right unit determinations, Congress didn't intend that, that exhaustion of constitutional claims should be exhaustion in indirect review the same way that it would be under um, a simple, you know, challenge statute. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you, Council. Mr. Garcia, we'll give the two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, the first one I want to talk about is the due process issue and when it was raised, right? So this is a quote from our motion to reconsider in November 17, 2020. Quote, the authority erred in at least two ways. One, it incorrectly concluded that this renewed attempt by the agency to rid itself of the union was not an unlawful collateral attack on a previous unit certification and two, ignored its own precedent and agency regulations. It's the fundamental things we've been raising for 20 years or for the past two years and it's in our briefing. It's been before the agency or the authority for at least two years. But so, that, uh, it seems to me quite different to say that it's wrong and to say that it's a violation of due process. Assuming that you needed to, assuming that this is the type of thing that you could have raised and that that doctrine applies here, well, those aren't we, the same thing. We believe that it, it raises to the level of a constitutional violation because we pointed out the same issues about the flippant nature of the decision, uh, the lack of uh, analysis to the regional director's decision. Um, that's why we, we think these arguments. That's just an arbitrary and capricious argument. So, to, to the, the same about arbitrary yeah, and capricious, um, right, the County of Sacramento case uh, has held that, quote, we have emphasized time and again the touchstone of due process is protection of the individual against arbitrary action of government, whether the fault lies in a denial of fundamental procedural fairness or in the exercise of power without any reasonable justification, the service of a legitimate government. Yeah, so you read that, and it means every case that we've decided that an agency has acted arbitrarily and capriciously, we've also decided that it's a violation of the Constitution. I don't think that's correct. I, I agree with you on that not every single time that uh, someone acts arbitrarily and capriciously is a constitutional violation, but in this 
in this context, right, having one sentence that essentially tries to justify overturning the 20-year-old union does shock the conscience, coupled with the fact of now Chairman Dubester's you know, two dissents talking about how he believes this was results-driven decision-making. Um, to the final argument on jurisdiction, um, you know, we believe that Griffith is controlling in this case, which did allow constitutional claims to be appealed under 7123A1, which shares the same legislative history as 7123A2. And because of that allowance, I, we have seen no cases that have flooded this court with constitutional claims on appeals for 7123A1. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel. We'll take this case under submission.